Hey, everybody, and welcome to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. This is Katie Weaver, and I'm here with my partner in crime and sister, Christy Brower. Hello. Hello. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Good, good. Try not to melt. We're having a heat wave in Idaho, which means 95. I know. Some of you are like, please, that's nothing. But to us, it is a lot. We're back to bitching. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm good because I have central air. And so as long as I'm in my house, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Yes. But we were at a barbecue earlier and I was melting into a puddle. It was was so hot. Brutal. We went home way sooner than we normally do from events like that because I just was too hot. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It was wild. But other than that, I'm great. I'm excited because we're doing a cold read today and I like these cases. They're fun. Yes, we are. Well, and last night we actually had like adult time for the first time in I don't know how long. We actually just, yeah, as the adults, Christy and I and our sister and our spouses all went out together and found a restaurant with a patio, you know, because we're trying to avoid, you know, people and, Mm -hmm. you know. Drank cocktails and visited, and it was so freaking nice. It's been it too was, long. We we have to do that much more often. Mm-hmm. We don't do kid free stuff nearly enough. enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm an empty nester for a week. You are. You know. That, that's I'm just crazy. Doing whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> but, you <laughs> know, the biggest doing whatever I want thing this week was this right here. Ooh, yes. I can give you guys a decent look at it. Yeah, I got a new tattoo. New tattoo. It's beautiful. It is a lotus, a giant lotus that takes up my entire forearm. If you're listening Mm -hmm. to the podcast and can't see the picture. But anyway, yeah. Big doing. That is so cool. Yeah. Well, what do you You've got my wife and I's wheels really turning now. We both got new tattoos planned. We're going to go to the girl you went to because she did such a good job. You know how it goes. One yep. person gets a new tattoo, then like everybody around them has to do it too. It's true. Yep. I know. Well, this is just the beginning of this piece. And so mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going back in October for round two, but I think it'll take three sittings to get it all done. Yeah, I, I, I will only sit for two hours. Yeah. That's my maximum also. Yeah. So two hours, then you let it heal and, you know, hang when out for a few months. And- arthritis and have chronic pain. Yeah. You know, two hours is max. And I know some people can go mm-hmm. way longer than that, but oof, oh, yeah. boy. Oh, but yeah. two, I'm like starting to get a little lightheaded and considering beating the crap out of the tattoo artist. <laughs> you know, that's enough. Yeah. Yep. Two hours is my maximum. So, and I know me, I know that's all I can sit for. So, but you know what? She did an enormous amount of work in two hours. So she really did. I, I'm very impressed. Yeah. I can't complain about a thing. So anyway, that's all. Well, what do you say? Do we dive in? Let's do this. I'm excited. Okay. All righty. So this is a cold read case. So I'm going to present this case to Christy and she'll read it for us. Um, I'm going to have quite a few questions for you about this case um, by the time we're done. And of course, as always, whenever you want me to stop so that you can throw out a read, do that. You know, there's okay. no prescribed time here. <clears throat> Excuse okay. me. So however you want to play this, we'll play it. Sounds All right, good. this case, and it'll be familiar to some of you guys because it was on Unsolved Mysteries uh, a long time ago, like mm. like clear back in the nineties. So oh, anyway, like one hundred and fifty years ago now. Well, yeah, like forever. Ago. In, in yeah. COVID time, it's like one hundred and fifty years. That's <laughs> what for sure. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about Monica Rizzo. Okay, Monica Rizzo was last seen alive on May fifth, nineteen ninety seven. 
She worked in San Antonio uh, and she left her job. She had to work a government job. She left her job uh, abruptly. She didn't say goodbye. She didn't tell anyone where she was going. She just took off partway through the day and left her purse at work. And for eight days, didn't come back to work. And her boss called many times. This was totally unlike her. She was extremely reliable, but things had been up with Monica. Her coworkers had been really worried about her. So then eight days went by. Her boss finally got her to answer the phone, and she told him she was sorry. She had a family thing come up, and she'd be back on Monday. And Monday came and went, and she did not come back. But if you back up just a little bit, apparently in the weeks leading up to her disappearing, Monica had been coming to work um, getting thinner and thinner and with bruises up and down her arms. And her coworkers were really worried about it and had tried to talk to her about it. And she kept assuring them that things were okay. And then they were worried enough about her that they actually called the sheriff and asked for a welfare check. And the sheriff did come out and do a welfare check and witnessed bruises on Monica's face. And she assured him that everything was fine. There was nothing to worry about. And the bruises on her face were the result of falling down. Well, yeah. So then, of course, Sarah Monica disappears. And, you know, it's been some time now. You know, obviously, her, her work has been, it's been a while since they've seen her. And so this was May 19th that she was supposed to be back at work. But uh, she didn't come back. So on June 5th, the San Antonio police receive a phone call that uh, claim that Monica has been murdered and that she's been murdered by her husband and that her bones are in the backyard of their home. So the police head right over there and her husband says, yes, sometime right around the 22nd of May, Monica left and has never come back and he has no idea where she went. So he didn't ever report her missing or anything like that, uh, you know, until the police showed up. They searched the backyard, of course. And one strange thing is when they got to the house to, uh, you know, to search and to talk to, to Leonard, he was having a seizure. And they did take him to the hospital They questioned their son. They have an adult son, had an adult son that lived across town. He said that he had not seen his mother in over a week. Her clothing were still all in the closet. Her car was still in the driveway. And in the backyard, the investigators only found animal bones. But they at least now know that things are happening, that she's missing. So now they're at least uh, kind of looking for her even though, you know, her husband seems to be pretty nonplussed about it. Well, on July 5th, so this is a whole month later, on July 5th, they get another anonymous call from a tipster. This time he says that Monica has been buried in the backyard. And this time he says that her remains are under a pile of tires. So the police come back and they search again and they find a skull and several bone fragments and a bag containing human flesh. So Leonard acts completely surprised, says he has no idea what this is all about, and that maybe someone's trying to frame him. Well, they finally search the inside of the home. And what they find inside of the home is that there has been a violent struggle. 
There is sheetrock that has been broken. There is blood spatter. Uh, the house is pretty uh, bashed in in certain spots. Leonard says that he was so distressed about Monica leaving that he had a little uh, episode and beat up the house and that the blood that they're seeing is his. So then investigators get talking to her coworkers and realize that uh, there had been a welfare check. They hadn't really put that together until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talk, realize that the coworkers had been very concerned about her. Uh, they were talking about the bruises and the losing weight and that, you know, things did seem to be wrong. So the police finally bring in an archaeologist. They just, some archaeologists from the University of Texas. It's now time to excavate the yard. So right. they start excavating the backyard. And anytime they find a bone fragment, they put an orange uh, pin flag in the ground to mark it. By the time they're done, the entire yard is covered. Over eight days, they have found more than 200 bone fragments in the yard. Wow. That are all right around three-ish inches long. And, or less, they even found some inside the barbecue grill. So initially, investigators decide that these remains belong to four people and that none of them are Monica. And Leonard, again, has no explanation for why there would be the remains of all these people in his yard. He has nothing. So... That's where it goes cold. Now, a little later on. It was cold. They didn't do. A little later on, DNA does show that, no, all of the remains did belong to Monica. Though that was their their compulsory findings were that okay. uh, they, they okay. were I just keep different. Wood chipper. I just want to say wood chipper out loud. That's what I keep feeling is that there's some kind of a some device like that that was used I, to spread all of that out. Okay. I just want to say that. Okay. Well, so of course, Leonard is considered the prime suspect, but police have uh, apparently not enough evidence to charge him. And no one has ever been charged. And that's literally where this case ends. Okay. Wow. Now, a couple of things. News reports indicate that Monica's son says he last saw her in the middle of the night on May 27th. Now, remember, the work says she was supposed to come back on the 19th. She never does. Leonard says that about three days after that, she takes off. So sometime around the 21st, 22nd-ish. Son says the last time he saw her was on May 27th. So... There is, you know, just nearly a week there where we're not sure. Did Mona, was she still home? What was happening there? We don't know. And then, of course, it was on the 5th when the first call came in that they, uh, that there were remains in the yard, though when they came and looked, they didn't find anything until, an, a, you know, another month later. All right. So... Christy, the police believe that the body had to have been destroyed by a wood chipper. So you're absolutely correct about that. Yeah. Uh, the person that called 
they finally find the anonymous caller. They figure out who he is. His name is Robert Hakala. He's a family friend. He says he was at their home on July or June the 5th when he saw their fam- the family dog playing with what looked like a human jawbone. And the teeth uh, had a weird overbite and a funny uh, overlapping teeth that looked like Monica's. And he realized that the remains were probably hers, so he went home and he called the police. He has never been a, sub- a suspect in this case, but there are some um, like bloggers and podcasters who have wondered if he had something to do with it. No, he didn't. This was all Leonard. Um, I, I think what we have to get back to is we have to get into Leonard a little bit. Um, my sense of Leonard is that Leonard has a psychotic disorder, um, schizophrenia or some kind of that. And and I don't like saying that because very few people with a psychotic disorder are actually dangerous or actually ever harm anyone. And so I want to say that up front, but I do feel that Leonard had, um, these psychotic episodes where he was uh, abusing her. I feel like part of it, and it seemed, it feels like, you know, typical domestic violence. So I'm fine. I fell down, whatever. But I do feel like she knew that Leonard was sick. I feel like she knew Uh he was sick. And so there was a part of her that was just, I'm going to hang in here and try to help him and, and help solve this because it's not his fault. That's what I keep hearing from her her is it's not his fault. It's not his Mm -hmm. fault. Um, Which I guess in, in very technical terms, it isn't because he he's ill. Yeah. Um, I feel like this, the seizure was a part of that, that he's having these episodes with his brain. Um, I also feel like there are periods of time that he doesn't remember that he has blackouts. Um, I mean, ultimately, does he know that he killed his wife? I do feel he does. Um, but, but does he consciously know it in the way that you or I would, if we did something like that while in our right minds? No. Um, but I do feel like this is a, 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 a major psychotic break on his part. Um, I do feel that the friend was just very concerned and that this was a way I I feel like the friend was guessing. I feel like he was guessing about where the body might be found in order to get the police over there and get them to do something that he didn't really know for sure. Mm -hmm. And so he was just guessing to get something going, you know, which obviously eventually did work. Um, But I do feel like this all comes down to a really serious mental illness on Leonard's part. And that's part of why, um, you know, they, they probably looked at his affect and his reaction to all of these things and it, none, none of it seemed to add up. Well, it doesn't when someone has an illness like that. And if they're catching mm-hmm. them in the right moment when they're fairly lucid and they don't have clear memory of the things that they've done, they may seem mm-hmm. to make some sense. And maybe they do seem like they have no idea what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, there are lots of elements to this when it gets into mental health about folks who have these, these um, psychotic states where it's almost as though they have a separate personality. It's, I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about dissociative identity disorder, but in psychosis, people can have sort of a, a, a darker side of them that comes out and comes out, you know, and, and acts on various things and, and they may not fully remember what, what they did during that time. Mm -hmm. I do feel like that's the case. Mm -hmm. Um, I find it stunning that they didn't look further into the husband that he wasn't charged. Mm -hmm. I mean, give me a break. Well, he would chipped his wife all over the yard. Right. Some interesting things there. Uh, 
1998, so about a year later, a homicide detective was leaning really hard on him trying to get a confession, you know, mm-hmm. something for them to keep going with. And he told them that if he could promise that he wouldn't do any more than 10 years, that he would confess. And they could not make that deal with him. They were unable to get a prosecutor that would make yeah. that deal with him. How and they possibly- so he didn't. But later on, he had absolutely no recollection of having that conversation. He also, even after DNA evidence revealed that that was his wife in the yard, he still was absolutely adamant that, no, she's alive. And that kind of, Christy, points me back towards what you're saying about his mental health, that he couldn't even get himself in a place where he could see her as being uh, deceased. He, He was certain that she was still alive. Mm-hmm. Well, and, 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 you know, in, in that state, you can, you know, develop all kinds of delusions and false beliefs about, oh, she's not here. So she must have gone somewhere. It's called, it's called confabulation. And when you don't remember something, we all do this a little bit. We've talked about this here on the show a little bit before, but when mm-hmm. you don't remember something, sometimes you fill in the blanks and someone mm-hmm. with a serious mental illness, particularly a psychotic disorder where they maybe have periods of time where they don't remember, their brain mm-hmm. will kind of fill in blanks. And so in his mind, well, it makes sense. She, yeah. um, She's not here, so she must have run away. She went somewhere else, you know, and that's yeah. how his brain is filling in. I, you know, I, I don't feel like that this was as, as horrible as this is and as terrible of abuse mm-hmm. as she experienced. It's a little different than a traditional domestic violence situation because it wasn't intentionally perpetrated. He didn't yeah. mean to kill her. He didn't plan to kill her. He was terrified. Mm-hmm. He was hallucinating. He, you know, he didn't really understand yeah. what he was doing at the time, but he most certainly yeah. did do it. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1999, in May of 1999, so two years later, Leonard was arrested for, guess what? Domestic mm-hmm. violence. He attacked his girlfriend, and she told the police that he told her he was going to chop her up in tiny pieces and put her flesh in a bag. Yeah. Ooh. Hmm. Sound familiar, anyone? Yeah. Seems like someone who shouldn't have been on the streets, right? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody who really needed help needed 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 to be medicated. I mean, there's really only one. Yeah. There's only one thing that you can do in a situation like that, and it is medication. There's nothing else that will solve that. Right. Totally. Yeah. You know, well, and, and then incarceration. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, he was convicted this time on assault with a deadly weapon, kidnapping, and drug possession. And so um, he did finally do some time, but he's never stood any time for Monica's death. And it, the investigators involved have, you know, have said that they really do believe that he's the one that killed her, but they have not been able to come up with enough evidence to prove it. So here's a few questions that I have for you. Uh, first of all, I did send you a picture of Monica. Yes actually of Leonard and Monica. And I wondered if you would read Monica for us. What, who was Monica? So to me, what I see in Monica is that she was a very um, kind and loving person. She's also fairly meek personality wise. She's not a really assertive personality. And I do feel that she is the kind of person who takes responsibility for things that aren't her fault. And so I felt like in this situation, she felt responsible for him, that he was ill. She had to help him. If he didn't get better, it was her fault. There was a lot of that 
deeply ingrained domestic violence victim um, energy mm-hmm. around this is my fault. I have to solve it. This is my problem. Uh, Do you she think she that, was raised in domestic violence? Uh, I suspect that she was definitely raised with abuse. Yes, because she certainly that has that victim energy about herself, that, that taking on responsibility. And mm-hmm. I feel like she didn't feel like she could tell anybody or do anything about it because she knew he was sick. And so in her mind, he wasn't a criminal. It wasn't right to call the police mm-hmm. and he was refusing any kind of medical care. He wouldn't, he wouldn't go see anybody. And in her mind, this isn't abuse because he's sick. It's not his fault. And so she, you know, the day that she ran out from work, mm-hmm. he was having a huge episode and she knew it and she just was terrified she had to get home. She was mm-hmm. always afraid that he was going to hurt himself. She was much more concerned about him hurting himself than she was about hurting her. Mm-hmm. You know, looking back on it, maybe not the best tack to take. But in her mind, she she certainly did not see this as I'm at risk. I need to get help. It was yeah. he's having problems I need to help him. That was much more her angle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she was terrified of the things that he might do to himself or other people. And so she did feel very obligated that she needed to be there with him all the time. Yeah. So when she stopped going to work, it was because she didn't dare leave him alone. She knew mm-hmm. what he was capable of. She knew what he might do out in the community. Mm-hmm. And she knew if she stayed home and stayed with him, then he couldn't go out and you know get into more trouble. Sure. Why didn't she call work and tell him? she was embarrassed. She already knew that people were questioning what was going on. And, you know, at this point, I feel like she was pretty beat up. I feel like she, you know, they were just seeing it as domestic violence. They're going to call the sheriff again. And that's what she was trying to, she was trying to keep the police out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, because yeah. that that would have helped her a lot. Yeah. And so she felt like the best thing she could do is just walk away and not say anything in order yeah. to not she was trying to not have any more problems than she was already dealing with. Sure. It would seem to me that the wood chipper would be the smoking gun. Yeah. For, so I, well, I have two questions there. How did he actually kill her? I feel I mean, like he beat her to death. I feel like it was a, it was a, a beating. There's a, there's a definite head injury uh, feeling around it. And then he freaked out and panicked. And of course he's psychotic and he doesn't know what to do. I do feel like there were times that he did not know who she was, that he Mm -hmm. was hallucinating her as someone else, some, someone that was there to harm him. And so he would fight her. And that's where a lot of the abuse came from and that he accidentally killed her in one of those uh, rages or, you know, one of those episodes. Okay. I wondered about that as well. Um, but again, it would seem to me that the smoking gun would be the wood chipper. Right. Where is it? Where did he get it? Mm-hmm. I feel like he rented it or borrowed it from someone. He didn't own one. He got it from somewhere else. There's this real energy, and I hate this, but this it doesn't surprise me, especially around the time frame that this happened. In the 90s, it, it's less of a problem now, but that idea of not wanting to get involved in other people's business, uh-huh. not wanting to get, this is a family issue. This is a, this is a problem between them. We, we don't want to get involved. I feel that energy around it. Like that there were people in the neighborhood, in their community that had some idea of what was going on, but that that was the energy is this is, this is a family problem. I don't want to get involved. And so I do feel like there are people that know more than they've said. Mm-hmm. And that at this point, they've just opted to not get involved, that they don't want to 
You know, I, I feel like there's one particular person that knows exactly where that wood chipper came from and they've opted to just, they don't want to involve their life in this situation. And so they've just chosen not to say anything. Mm-hmm. Could that have been the son? No, it's not the son. Could it have been the friend that made the call? No. It's oh, someone, someone else. It's the third person. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense to me. It does. Uh, do you think he ever will be charged on this? No, I don't. Uh, I do feel that he may um, end up charged on something else. And like, you know, we, we know he already has been, but I, the, the problem with a disorder like this is it's just going to continue happening. Like you can't, it doesn't just go away one day. I mean, that's very rare to happen yeah. and that his violence will escalate again and that he'll continue getting in trouble. But I feel like this was messed up. This, this investigation was messed up. I also mm-hmm. feel like it was a really long time ago before forensics were, if this were to happen now, forensically, they would prove it in 10 seconds. Yeah. But yeah. in the 90s, that just wasn't the case. And, yeah. you know, they just didn't have the capabilities that they do now. But I don't feel that he will ever be um, charged for her death. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Well, how terribly sad. And it's so interesting because she just continues to come through with it's not his fault. Yeah. I don't blame him. It's not mm-hmm. his fault. That's just, that's her whole message, which is interesting because unfortunately her not wanting to get anyone involved in this led to her death, but it's also led to him continuing to be very ill. Mm -hmm. And, and had she been willing, you know, to, to get someone involved and maybe even get the police involved and maybe even get him in trouble, she could have saved her own life and she could have also um, gotten him help. It's mm-hmm. it's not that what he has is untreatable. It isn't, right? No. Um, but it's unfortunate. I think that it's a it's an education issue, and and I understand where she was coming from. I don't mean to blame her, but the idea that if this is going on in your private life, and you think the best thing to do is not tell anyone, that's wrong. That is yeah. not the best thing to do in any yeah. way. And if someone just that's definitely a learned uh, behavior. It is a learned behavior. And it is that that fear of getting, you know, admitting a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, she knew. Yeah. She knew he was hallucinating. He was psychotic. He was, yeah. you know, I don't like that crazy word. But, you know, in, in these terms, he was crazy and oh, very wow. dangerous. And mm-hmm. had she told someone and sought help. And, you know, it's sad because she had a lot of support. She had people who would have helped her had she only told them. Her coworkers adored her. But she strikes me as somebody who doesn't know how much people care about her. No. I think it's more of that, uh, well, it's more of the the chain of domestic violence, really, and and being in Mm -hmm. violence as a kid and then as an adult, but really not recognizing that there were people that cared about her and cared enough to get involved. Right. And and that I'm uh, I'm putting everyone else before me. So in her mind, her, her responsibility in this situation was not to protect herself. It was to protect him. Yeah. Even though he was the one hurting her. It's really sad. And I I think if anything, a case like this can be a great learning experience that, Hey, if that kind of thing starts going on with your spouse, you need to call the police and get them to a hospital and get Mm -hmm. them help because it turns out that there's lots of help in situations like this. Yeah. Now, is it always a psychotic disorder in domestic violence? No, it definitely well, isn't. But, but usually in this case, yeah. it, it definitely was. And this is something that would have been treatable and, mm-hmm. um, you know, could have had a lot different outcome. 
unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Very sad. Well, that's too bad. And honestly, much love to their son who. Yeah. I, I can only imagine what this was like for him and what it still is like for him. I mean, you know, one parent gone, the other parent, he's got to know. Oh yeah. I would imagine so. But this, the, the secret keeping around mental illness is, so mm-hmm. tremendously damaging. And it that's is what this was. Was secret well, keeping around the serious secret, mental illness. The stigma and the secret keeping. Yeah. 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 Well, what's the old saying? Our secrets keep us sick, you know? Yes. And yes. It's so much the case in a situation like this, particularly because yeah. this is a treatable medical disorder. Right. You know? Right. I feel There's no like shame he, in it. Leonard didn't do this to himself. This is no, but I do know. feel like he had threatened her that, you know, if she, you know, that, that he would kill himself. I, there was a lot of threats of killing himself. And I feel like oh, there's yeah. a threat there that if you try to make me go to the doctor or the hospital or the police get involved, I'll just kill myself and it will be your fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's definitely to take on responsibility that way. She was willing to risk her own life much more than she was willing to risk what he might do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. That's that is quite the case. It's a really sad one. Um, like like they're all not, you know. But they all are, but that particularly because it was it was preventable. And I, I just I, I hope that we can, you know, honor her memory and and also recognize that we know better and we're gonna do better. And yes. that in a situation like this, the answer is always to seek help. Yeah. And also that you can't treat this yourself. You Never. know, no, absolutely just, not. There, there's no essential oil on the planet for this one. You know, nope. it, you can't mm-hmm. do this yourself. Yeah. No. It's good to know. I do think that we've gotten better about taking the st- stigma out of mental health, but it's certainly still there. You know? Oh yeah. I mean, it's improved, but it's not gone. No, not at all. No. Yep. Okay. Well, you guys, a few things. Uh, if you're listening to our podcast, we appreciate you being here. If you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe we would love to uh love for you to follow us so that you'll see the next thing we have coming out and and it's always something Uh, we do have a patreon we are uh true crime paranormal with the psychic sisters on patreon if you would like to become a patron and you know pick up a little monthly subscription you do get a little more content than everyone else does and it just helps us to continue to keep this work going so we appreciate you very much and of course on youtube subscribe, like, comment. Those things help us so much. And if you like what we're doing, share us with your other true crime junkie friends. You know, we love it when you guys, uh, we know you're all out there, you know, (laughs) we know there's a tribe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're just like a part of it forever. That's right. And you can find us on Facebook as well. Um, Coming up this week, uh, Chad Daybell will be arraigned on the 21st on Friday. And so uh, we will do a live later that day after the arraignment and talk about what happened. We're going to find out. Is he going to plead guilty or not guilty? We are predicting a not guilty plea, of course. Uh, that's, I think that's pretty obvious. But, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. There should be a trial date set at that point. Uh, we would assume so. So it's going to get interesting. We'll, they may at that point also be filing for a change of venue. We don't know. Yeah, it's curious to see. Curious to see if that's going to come up. If it's mm-hmm. it's time, if they're going to trial, then they're going to file for change of venue. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, but we will give you all of the deets on that 
and coming up. So thank you all so very much for being here. We appreciate all of your support. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. You have been listening to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. Take care. Thanks, guys. Bye. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can always like and subscribe there as well. We also love comments and reviews. True Crime Paranormal is hosted by Katie Weaver and Christy Brower and produced by Christy Brower. True Crime Paranormal is a short girl productions podcast.